0: Welcome back to the Midwest Mommy. This is your host, Mae Santos. And this is episode two, Finding Colombia. So I'm super excited to be recording today's episode today with my friend Juliana Peterson, otherwise known as Julie to me. Um, And we met my freshman year of college, so it's really nice to be able to circle back today um, and see where we both have sort of been these past few years. Juliana Peterson is a Colombian-American artist with strong ties to her birth country, Colombia, and her heart home of Ecuador. She's a multimedia artist with specialties that range from ceramics, printmaking, papermaking, bookmaking, and painting. She has studied at the Minneapolis Community and Technical College, received her Bachelor's of Fine Arts from the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, and is currently pursuing a Master's degree in Arts Education at the University of Minnesota. So Julie, how would you describe your beginning or like the way that you started off in in Minnesota, here, in general? (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) so uh, I was born originally in Bogota, Colombia. I'm adopted. I was adopted when I was a baby, like six weeks old. So I've always known that I was adopted. Um, when my parents brought me back to the United States, they brought me to Scandia, Minnesota, which is kind of like it sounds. It's like Scandinavian immigrants and heritage. And so I grew up around that. And I was brought home to a brother and sister as well, who are also adopted. They're a lot older, 16 and 13 years older than me. So for a little while, it was the five of us in our family. And then um, my parents got divorced, and my mom and I were the only two left. Since my siblings were older, they were gone, and so was my dad. And her and I were moving around into various cities in Minnesota, and then we went to, well, I guess towns. They are really small. (laughs) We went to towns in Wisconsin, and we finally ended up in Osceola, Wisconsin, which was where she taught for her whole life and where I went to school my whole life and so we ended up close to my school district in just on the other side of the river valley and I grew up there and just like everywhere else I lived it was pretty small um Osceola was a town with one stoplight two annual drive your tractor to school days oh my god (laughs) and a 30 minute drive to the nearest Walmart
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I know when we were first talking about, like, so for those of you who are listening, I try to meet with my guests before we record just to see an idea of, you know, what their story is, what things that they really want to mention to the audience members, and when we were talking, your your childhood was so different than everything <laughs> I've experienced, and I've lived yeah. in Minnesota too, so it's not like, you know, it we're... We came from vastly, like, different places. Exactly. But small-town Minnesota, small-town Wisconsin, and then, like, even the concept of drive your tractor (laughs) to (laughs) school. I
1: can't even get over it to this
0: day. Yeah, so, like, explain to me, I guess, what that did for your identity, like, what that did for shaping how you started off, like, as a child, your life from there.
1: Yeah, growing up out there, it was pretty whitewashed. I mean, that's what everyone out there was. There was a very small percentage of people of color out there. And even the concept of, like, Minneapolis or anywhere else in the world was, like, forever away. So, in my small town, I never even had a teacher of color growing up, which actually took years of reflection to even realize that. And my mom, who worked in the school district, didn't even know. I had to tell her, like, did you know that? Oh, for sure. <laughs> She's like, Oh. No, I didn't think about it, but I mean, growing up in like a like mixed-race family, she didn't have to think about it, whereas I it took me a lot of work to do that, mm-hmm. but the place that I could really like feel more like myself was a camp called La Semana, and it ended up being my home away from home, and I like felt like I actually fit in there, and um, La Semana is a one-week summer camp out in Lakeville, Minnesota. And um, it's for kids who are adopted or have ties to adopted family members. And everyone is welcome there. Like my um, siblings, they went when they were younger. And my brother's adopted from Minnesota. And my sister's from Columbia, too. But they still went because my brother had ties. And it didn't feel as great for him. He didn't like it as much. But it was he was still welcome. And the resources there, even though everyone can come... The resources and education provided is aimed at kids from Latin America it's kind of a place to be an adopted Latina kid whereas you don't have to be the kid growing up in a white community and you don't have to be a kid from Colombia that is Colombian mm-hmm. you can be both at the same time which is it's super rare to find. Definitely. Like, you didn't have to choose specific aspects of yourself to perform. You just had to, like, yeah. show up as yourself. Exactly. Basically. You didn't have to choose. You could just be you. And yeah. you had friends that understood your things. And they also had friends back at home that were white. Like, my BFF is white. My other friends, whole entire group of, like, their posse of friends is white. And that was never really a problem. And we get along with them. But we all just have something else that we share that goes a little bit deeper definitely that camp um, had a lot of different classes for us to learn from there were things like specialty where every year they focused on a different country and Mm. they would teach you about say Bolivia for this this time and you would learn about their dances food culture other years it would be Colombia they switched um, between Colombia and Guatemala a lot because there were, there are more children adopted from those two countries that attended the camp, Mm -hmm. and I think that has to do with adoption policies and politics and stuff, but it really gave everyone a chance to broaden their horizons and get to learn about their heritage, which um, you and I were talking about never, almost never happens in the public
0: schools. No, totally, and I think, you know, I, I'm a Midwestern Mexican-American woman, and That has come with its own, you know, sets of issues, but one of the things I've never really had to do, and because of the education system, is acknowledge, you know, the the histories of other Latin American countries, and of course there's deeper issues beyond just that being shown in the education system, you know, Mexican nationalism and, and whatnot. But um, just being able to sort of remedy that by showcasing different countries so you get a wider view of what Latin America is, that's so important yeah. and essential for especially Midwestern you know, 100%. people. hundred <laughs>
1: percent. Yeah, It was like this whole secret place that we got to go and it was really fun because we would get to be around our friends and speak a little more Spanish and like dance these dances and listen to the music and like Shakira took on a whole new meaning for us <laughs> at that camp. <laughs> And (laughs) we even, um, one of the most important parts of it though, we got to take a class called life and every single grade class got to take it. So that's like kindergarten through seventh grade and they took life and each year they talked to you about, um, basically the psychology of being adopted, I think is what it comes down to. They talked to little kids about, um, feeling included. They did community builder games They, um, like, asked you questions, and one game in particular, they asked little kids to come up with their own name of their skin color, and so we talked about, like, my skin color is pancakes, my skin color is cinnamon, (laughs) and stuff, like, that was a lot more different than just brown, right? and, like, different than white. We got to be our own like, seeing the depth in your skin
0: color and exactly. really recognizing that beauty. And, like, of course, with the vocabulary that you have as a child, but, like, being able to have that agency is so important. That's yeah. Really, it can really change the way that, like, children see themselves. So life taught you a lot of that.
1: Um, life, too, but, like, class, <laughs> like in general, but, like, life. Um, they also talked a lot about, like, this like, I guess um, they talked a lot about adoption and how adoption stories differ a lot and how if you want to seek out your birth family and your birth parents how to be prepared for that mm-hmm. and they showed us videos of kids who have done the search and haven't found anything and some kids who have done the search and found their parents but they didn't want to talk to them and there's a, like a million um like thinking in Spanish it's like un montón de posibilidades right but um, <laughs> of things that could happen to you um I mean so that really was the most I ever felt connected to myself growing up Mm. and I came home every summer like with new knowledge and a little bit more Spanish and just a legitimate heartache from knowing the rest of my world couldn't be like that for sure no I think it's
0: almost like a nostalgia for something that you never really had that background in. I th- I think of that like, when when I'm looking at certain things with my Mexican heritage, you know, I'm not Mexican. I'm Mexican American, mm-hmm. and there's nostalgia that I have, even though I never grew up in Mexico and I don't have that background. So it's interesting to think about that, and especially in the Midwest, like how does that you know, how does that manifest in our work? So. That's a a question for audience members (laughs) to think about, like, the nostalgia of being a person of color and thinking of your homeland, right? Exactly. Get at (laughs) us. (laughs) So, um, my next question for you is, how did you end up from small town Wisconsin in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, at MCAD? What was, like, the decision process, and what was that like for you, coming over, you know, to the Twin Cities, basically?
1: Yeah, that was a big decision, and it took a lot to make it. I was reflecting on that, and I was thinking about, um, in high school, I was always drawn to the arts. I did choir and theater and any kind of design, like the yearbook, and Mm -hmm. I did visual arts classes, every single one I could take, and I did a photography internship, and those were classes that I loved And I did love school, though. I loved going to class. I loved seeing my friends. But I was thinking about how my other classes really gave me enjoyment because of the companionship of my classmates Mm -hmm. and, like, kind of learning new stuff. But my arts classes, they gave me really... A sense of independence of my own learning and I didn't feel like I had to have a friend in that class to be happy I was on my own and I took my learning into my own hands and I just went for it and I made sure to learn as much as I could and spend as much time as I could in those art rooms or in the theater or choir any part of that was all on my own and so I knew that that could be something that I would enjoy myself and that I could live with myself doing so I took the advice of my only creative professional relative I have a cousin <laughs> who gave me advice to check out his alma mater Minneapolis College of Art and Design so I went over there and I checked it out along with some other schools and I got in as well as like maybe five other schools that I applied to and most of them were art colleges One of them was the U and I knew I didn't want to do the U. I didn't want to go to like a big city school and Mm -hmm. be with all those people. I was more interested in focusing in on the arts. And even though I got into other places MCAD was really calling me and also the presidential scholarship gave me a little push. (laughs) The
0: money (laughs) also. Exactly. (laughs) No, it's so funny. The same thing happened with me and, um, for audiences the context of our relationships actually Julie and I met when I was a freshman and you were a senior right yeah I so you so. graduated my first year so it's really cool to hear your process of going to MCAT because I was starting my process when, you yeah. were finishing <laughs> when I finally figured some things out <laughs> So what was your practice looking like when you were at MCAT? Like Just for people to know what you did during that time.
1: Yeah, um, I got there and I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to like teach myself how to be a responsible individual. <laughs> I didn't know how to reach out to faculty members and I didn't know how to really like make friends. Because I didn't really know where I belonged, whether I should find people that looked like me or like people that I'm used to being around like people from kind of the suburb area of big cities which are mostly white people Mm -hmm. and I mean I grew up around those people so that I was comfortable with them Mm -hmm. but I was really at a crossroads of like what do I do and I was just sort of making I guess in your first year of MCAD you're exploring and just figuring out the programs and the resources and stuff and I think I started to make things that I thought people would like Mm -hmm. and that was a huge barrier for me I think because not a lot of people knew me or understood my weird crazy identity (laughs) so it was really difficult trying to be that person that I didn't know who I was and nobody else did either I did have a few professors though that did harness a few things like some of my ideas that just kind of came out of me sure and um One in particular, my very first project, I think my first successful project at the end of my freshman year was a, it was kind of like an archive of all of my adoption forms, Mm. and it was in photo one class. But it was a final, so it like had to kind of do with like photography slash documenting. Definitely. But it kind of could. It was an open ended assignment, and my professor we were talking, and I um, remember her asking me these questions like, "Well, does this have to be a photograph? Well, do you have to take new imagery? Can you take old stuff? Can you make photocopies? Can you use this documentation of sorts and mm-hmm. photocopy like baby photos of yourself?" And so I made this whole exhibit in one of the alcoves of MCAD, and people would come in and look around on each pedestal. They would open up a folder that was labeled like birth certificates, because I have multiple ones, one mm-hmm. in Colombia, one for my adoption, one translated to English. And I have different documents about um, my birth family. Um, in high school, I traveled to Colombia and I was able to go to the orphanage that I was given up to. And they had the whole file still of all the information my birth mom had to fill out to put me up for adoption. And this is a really good agency. I know there are some that, um, this is another part of the adoption thing. Like you might not have gone through a legitimate agency, but the one I went to the owner, or I guess the, like, I don't know, CEO Gen manager, I don't know. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, leader. Lady, the lady in charge was the same lady from when I was a baby. And she remembered wow. my mom and she remembered me. And even though I was a year shy of being 18, which means that I'm legally allowed to look at my stuff, she still let me do it anyway. And she gave me photocopies of everything, which she wasn't supposed to do. But I had all of this information, including the names of my two half-brothers that were older than me, So this stuff manifested itself into this archive as my first photo project. And it was really like the start, and it didn't really finish, but it was the start of something that was personal and it was unique and it had to do with my mixed identity. And that was probably the most successful thing. But it was really hard continuing that momentum because Mm -hmm. nobody... I think I switched departments, actually, from photography to the print paper book, which is, like, fine art and hands-on and not photography. Yeah. (laughs) So I had to, like, go through the ringer and meet new people again and, like, form new relationships with my professors and try to help them help me, like, chisel apart my identity again. And so I kind of got in another rut, but... um, and again, I was making work that I thought other people wanted to see, mm-hmm. and I don't know if I was being lazy, I think I was, but like then a part <laughs> of it was like, I don't know what to do, so I'll just right. do this and throw it out there, and the constructive criticism and feedback from my peers and my teachers just weren't really enough until I got to paper making. And then I started making things that felt more like me, and felt more true and authentic definitely and I was having to work through my adoption again and I had to work through the dynamics between myself and my birth mom and some depression and anxiety I was going through at the same time and that's what made me find my best work Mm -hmm. and it's still even a battle today kind of but that was kind of the roller coaster I was riding in MCAD definitely and I think
0: When you were talking about helping your professors to help you, that dynamic and that experience is so unfortunately (laughs) um, notable for a lot of people of color in different ways, of course. But trying to help your professors develop the vocabulary to help you. Oh, is exactly. like You're teaching your teacher and you're paying to go to school. So it's. Right. You know, it gets to <laughs> the point where, like, you know, at times it feels like you're putting in a lot more effort to learn things that you should be able to learn because you're paying money, you know? Exactly. And just having that experience of you know, not having the exact satisfaction from critiques, you know, I think a lot of creatives of color, we have to deal with that often because we, that vocabulary hasn't really been developed yet. It's in the works and there's, you know, there have been many groups of people who have been trying to solidify a proper vocabulary to address identity work, but do we have like an official way to do that? No. No, No. that's not easy. (laughs) Right, and so, you were talking about the process of finding the documents for your family and sort of that the information that was given to you. And, uh, and of course, I know what you're about to say, but for audience
1: members, what happened after that in, in the, your life story? So going back to my adoption, um, back in high school, my mom, I referred to her as my mom, who's my adopted mom. She's the one that raised me, and I grew up with her. So my mom took me to Colombia back in high school for the first time. And that was the first time I left the country, too. We were just tourists. We explored Bogota, which is where I was born. And we explored Cartagena, which is one of her favorite places to go. And she's been back a few times for my sister's adoption and my adoption and then this vacation. Mm -hmm. So she wanted to show me some places she knew of. And it was a good exploratory experience and that's when we went to the orphanage and found all of those documents and I got to walk around and really think about like I, I was here once mm-hmm. and I have seen this land before and um, we once we got an address for my birth mom's apartment of where she was when she was pregnant with me we had a driver take us and we drove past there in that neighborhood and I saw the building where she was living and at that time she was with her mother my abuela and then my two half brothers who were four and two at the time so we knew all of this and we got to like explore a little bit and really just sort of touch the surface Mm -hmm. and when I went home from there I think I completely changed I didn't want to be a tourist anymore I didn't want to be among all these people who looked like me where Mm -hmm. I finally felt like oh my gosh I don't stick out I look like I belong here but I didn't feel like I belong Mm. so I didn't want to have that feeling anymore so going to college and after getting through that assignment I had really been thinking um, over like the summertime into my sophomore year into the fall about reaching out again and I had a friend who asked me like can you my friend asked me have you searched for them on facebook and i was like um yeah a while ago though and they were like oh of course you have duh like why did i even ask like don't even listen to me i'm crazy i was like no maybe i should take a look again and they were like no no don't do it just because of me and i was like you know what like why not Mm -hmm. why not just take a look and i'll look again and i did the same thing i always did like pulled up and looked at my birth mother's name and Like, a list of people came up, and it didn't really match up. But then I thought back to those half-brothers that I had, and Mm -hmm. um, I thought about their names because um, I don't think my half-siblings have middle names, but they have the traditional two last names. So I looked up Andre Duarte Gomez, and I found this person in Colombia. Also, Facebook has all those features, like, yeah, in like, no, that, or in Colombia, or from this area, or goes to school here, mm-hmm. so I put in Colombia, and, and his name, and I found this person, and I clicked on him, and immediately, I, like, showed my friend, and I was like, do we look like each other? Is this it? Do you think it's <laughs> it? Are we related? And they were like, I have no idea. Like, you look Colombian. I don't know. <laughs> so, I was like, oh, okay. Thanks. Well, yeah. Let me keep looking. I'm jumping the gun here. So I was looking at this person's profile and looking at their photos, and I was like, hmm, okay, well, if this person's one half-brother, then maybe he should be friends with the my other half-brother. So I searched in um, his friends, Roni Duarte Gomez, which is my other half-brother, the one that's closer in age to me. And I was looking through – I found somebody. So that one person did have a friend named Roni – And they were connected. So I was looking through that person's profile photos. And while looking through them, I saw that he had a photo of him with a birthday cake. And it had the numbers 18. So it was his 18th birthday. Like he was sitting behind the cake with the candles (laughs) lit. And I looked at the year on the photograph. And it said 2010. And this guy is supposed to be two years older than me. And my, I turned 18 in 2012. And I was like, mm. that lines up. Right. So I started to freak out a little bit more. But I was still like, chill out. It's okay. Like, don't <laughs> don't like, jump to conclusions. Like, you're still just searching. So then I went back to the other brother's Facebook page. And I was clicking through some more photos of his to try to find family or names or anything else that I could dig up. And I saw this one comment on one of his photos, and the comment read "Mi precioso bebé hermoso," <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, like oh, oh, like an older woman would probably comment that to her son. I'm guessing, like mm-hmm. my precious baby, like you're so handsome." So <laughs> I clicked on this woman's name, which was Martha Gomez Hernandez, which was my birth mother's name. So I thought, as like the page was loading. I held my breath. I thought that I found this one guy's Facebook, which led me to a potential second half brother, which led me back to potentially my birth mom, all in one Facebook sitting. Right. Like, I've done this search before, never come up with anything. So, oh, totally. it might be the time. So, I was brought to her page, and all this information that I had pulled from those adoption documents told me where she was from, her birth date, um, how old she was. And so I looked on her Facebook, and, I mean, coincidentally, they make you enter all that stuff in. Mm -hmm. So it said, Marta um, Gomez Hernandez from Codazzi Cesar, which is a region in Colombia, which lined up to where my birth mom was from. And then I looked back to her profile pictures, and I was going through them, and she has this weird thing with, like, Photoshop, so some of her photos were, like, not indistinguishable to a person (laughs) or a face, so... (laughs) was looking through and I finally found one of her wearing this whole costume and she was a bruja. She had this witch hat on and she had like this mask and like makeup and she was standing there and she looked so pretty. And so it was taken on October 31st, which is Halloween. Mm-hmm. They so they celebrate that there. And that's also her birthday of my birth mom. So I looked down into the comments and somebody says, "Marta, feliz cumpleaños." And so I figured out that this woman is from the same region as my birth mom. She has the same birthday as my birth mom. She has two kids, apparently, it would seem, that are the same ages as my half-brothers. This has to be it. Wow. And so I looked at her and I tried to ask again, like, does she look like me? And I I don't right. <laughs> I don't know if anybody would know at first glance, but then I I figured out I'm pretty sure this is it. So I wrote out a message spanish which took me about a week to translate i was terrible at spanish <laughs> <laughs> and i find, I sent it off and then i waited a whole week in between my classes i was checking facebook to see if she had read my message she hadn't yet and so it was a week later that i checked facebook and by chance it had said seen at um, whatever 9 a.m and i freaked out and i was like oh my god she's sad oh my god like, what, <laughs> did you, what did she respond what if she doesn't respond what do i do <laughs> So I had to sit there and suffer for another week because she wasn't responding. And later she told me why, but a week later she finally responded. She wrote back a message saying, see, I know who you are. I know that you are my daughter. And yes, I am your birth mother. And I would love to know more about you and I would love to tell you this story. And so that's how we finally got connected. She had told me that in that week of seeing my message, She freaked out because she had only told her mother about me. They were living together at the time when Mm -hmm. she was pregnant. So her mother knew. And my half-brothers knew, but they were so young they didn't remember. And she had shortly remarried after I was adopted Mm -hmm. to the love of her life. And they had a baby pretty soon after. So she had her baby girl that she'd always wanted, who's my younger half-sister. And none of those people knew that I existed. So... She freaked out and ran to her bedroom and her husband came over and was like, knocking on the door, like, hey, you okay? We're like,
0: what's You're going on? Kind of
1: freaking out <laughs> yeah. And she finally opened the door and explained to him, and he sat down with her and listened and then said, Why don't we go talk to her? Like, I'll go with you. I'm gonna help you write a message to her. We'll do this together. And that again is like something that almost might never happen. Like, especially in La Semana they would tell us stories about, like, even if you get so far as to communicate and to reach the right person, her family might not know and her current husband might not be okay with it. So you might not get contact for, like, even fear of her life. Mm -hmm. So to have this happen was really, like, the best case scenario out of everything. It's, like, a a one-in-a-million miracle. Right. I know when you were first telling me
0: the story, I was just so astounded by, like, the chain of events and how it continued building up like I feel like this is a story you can only see in like a movie right yeah <laughs> and also like just to point out like your birth mother's husband's reaction like he must really have a good sense of his like a, like a healthy sense of masculinity right. to be able to be such a good and healthy partner during this time you know you have someone who's contacting you and is like you know I think you're my mom and he's yeah. helping her navigate that that's that in itself is also incredible too. I know. So, so, what was the process? You know, you you're able to speak to her. You get in contact.
1: What happens next? Well, I had tried to stay in contact with her, but I was I was in school, and um, I think it's been a theme in my relationship with her that I'm in school. I had to work two jobs to put myself through MCAD without piling up a mountain of debt, and so I was always busy, and uh, the studios at MCAD are conveniently open 24-7 if you have access, so I was always making work, and I just didn't feel confident enough to have a conversation with her or to speak to the family, and I was nervous that I had a half-sister, and I didn't know Spanish that well, so I needed help whenever I needed to talk to her And it was, like, extremely overwhelming. It was everything I had ever wanted in my life, but I was really scared of how to go about it. Right. And I got nervous about my adopted mom, but she was really supportive. But I think in the end, I just ended up making excuses of, like, reasons not to talk to her. So... I tried to finish out school, and I learned that my half-sister was pregnant, and she had a baby, Aww. and a little girl, <laughs> and she, her name is Dani Julieth. And they said they use that name because of my name, Julie. Aww. And so I know that there's another little. I have another little sobrina out in Colombia, and I already have six here in the United <laughs> States. And they honestly, all of them have my whole heart. And so there's another little human out there that shares my genes, and she's my niece, and she's, like, literally shares my blood, which wow. is not true of anyone else in the world. So I continued through MCAD, and I graduated, and I kept up with work pretty hard. I stayed working in the print shop as an assistant at MCAD. I was a TA for a couple different classes on a few different days. I volunteered a couple days a week at different places. And I was working, I got a new restaurant job as a host downtown. <laughs> and So like a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was still living in the sweet spot of deferring my loans. But yeah. <laughs> I still, you know, I was still, I couldn't stop my work ethic. I had to keep going pretty strong. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, maybe I wonder if part of that was because I still didn't want to stop being busy. For many reasons but maybe one of them was talking to my birth family and eventually after MCAD I had to figure out what I wanted to do so I thought a lot about the volunteer positions I had, which were teaching English as a second language to adults. Mm-hmm. And some of it was to little preschoolers who had to be in daycare while their parents were taking most English classes. Mm-hmm. And I was in one location in South Minneapolis over on Chicago, and that was the first place I volunteered. And there were a mix of people from mostly Africa, like Somalia and Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And then I met a woman who was from Honduras and it made me think about um other places I could volunteer and people who spoke Spanish and that's what I wanted I wanted to be able to learn Spanish and be around Spanish speakers and so I found an opportunity at the acronym is CLUES and they do um They do English classes for people mostly from the Latina community. And so they let me come in, and I switched from my first position over to there. And I met people who were from Ecuador, which, like, actually, that was most of my students who were from there. And I met a woman from Colombia who just wanted to tell me all these stories, and I just couldn't understand her. And she sat down, she learned I was from Colombia, and the other volunteers didn't speak Spanish, but... Or I think one of them kind of did. And she just, like, picked me out, which I think I probably knew the least of them all. (laughs) And she was, like, telling me all this stuff. And I didn't... I just felt so terrible because I lost her, like, almost immediately. For sure. So I was, like, well, I gotta do something about that. I can't, like, hide from everybody who speaks Spanish forever, especially if I want to be around them. Mm -hmm. And I was looking up opportunities to maybe go abroad and live there, and I had heard from a family friend, there's this company called World Teach, and they send people out into other countries for a semester, or a summer, or even a year. Um, they do have different lengths, and you can go teach English, and they, do, they had positions in Colombia, and the location you could end up would be, like, anywhere in Colombia. such a huge country, but mm-hmm. I was just really hoping, like, if I get in, maybe I can tell them I want to be in Cartagena. Maybe I can live with my family. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. And I would started to apply, um, and I had support from people that were like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Why don't you do that? And I had gotten all the way through until I got to my application essay, and it stopped me pretty much dead in my tracks because I've been a terrible procrastinator, terrible (laughs) writer. Like I have never had that ethic to write that well. I don't know why. I I love to write, but that stopped me for sure. Mm -hmm. And I still wanted to do it and I just couldn't get myself to. And somewhere in the middle of that, I got an email from World Teach saying that, Colombia has been canceled, <laughs> so we appreciate your application, but you can't go there anymore. Right. Genius. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, all my references think I'm going to Colombia. Mm-hmm. Part of my story is like in my application essay. I was planning to write about how being in Colombia was great because that's where I'm from. So now you're taking that away from me. What right. am I gonna do?
0: It's just like the rug taken from under you. Exactly. All of a sudden.
1: <laughs> So they told me, well, you know that our programs, you have to pay, like, $1,000 or $2,000 to come down here. That covers, like, X amount of expenses, and we should reimburse you when you're done. But we actually have this new program starting in Ecuador where we pay for everything, and we still give you a stipend every month. And basically, you come down for free, and we'll pay you to come live here. and. I think I was just pretty much speechless, and I didn't know what to do, but a good amount of my social circle around me was like, "Um, go to Ecuador for free? Yeah. (laughs) What are you still doing here? And it was like the most terrifying thing, but I ended up deciding like, yeah, okay. I mean, Ecuador is just the country below Colombia. Um, It's a small country. It's going to be easy to get around and travel, so why not? go to somewhere new add another country to my list that'd be great so (laughs) um it was really hard to say yes to that but I knew I had to embark on that journey Mm -hmm. because otherwise what was I going to keep doing stay in the city stay at the same college I just graduated and work in the same restaurants downtown that I've always been at it just sounded like the right thing to do so like you needed a change like something
0: to really shift your perspective almost
1: yeah, and I was ready to be in a place that made me recognize where I could have been, mm-hmm. where I could have grown up. Totally. So that was really helpful in like pushing me to do that. And even with that, I was still so unsure because I had just started a new relationship. I was finally able to spend more time with my friends and family that I had been MIA from for the last four years in college. Mm-hmm. And I had jobs that were like decent. I had two cats and two roommates and an apartment. <laughs> and I'd worked so hard to get that, to get there. And then I was just gonna give it all up. Right. But I, again, it's the support that was around me. My boyfriend, who was like, we were like three months dating at that time, or four months, and he told me, like, you should do this. It's mm-hmm. a good opportunity. You should go. And I had a friend who took in one of my cats for me. My mom took in another one of my cats. My mom took my stuff to her basement. And I had to get rid of a ton of stuff, too. I don't even know why I had so much (laughs) stuff. It's like living in college is like the worst. It creates you or makes you become a hoarder. So I had to get everything out of my apartments. And the roommate situation worked out. And before I knew it, I had two huge suitcases and was staying in the city one last night before I went to the airport in the morning. So you just dropped everything, basically. Yeah. Wow. I put on all my two-week notices, quit as many of my jobs as possible because I needed time to pack, which is very important. <laughs> <laughs> if you take all the time you need to pack because it's going to take longer than you think. <laughs> Or maybe it's just me. I'm very attached to all of my inanimate objects. <laughs> you know, that, and I think that's part
0: of it. Like, you, we start sort of creating our nest, right? Because that's, yeah. like, it's our comfort zone. So to to make that decision to be like, you know what, I'm just going to leave everything behind and go, that's such a big step. And I think I, I'm a very big proponent for people of color to travel just because it, it's not really promoted within our communities to do so and it's not easily accessible for us as well yeah. so for you to just drop everything and say you know what, I'm going to go to this country I wasn't even planning on going yeah to, <laughs> that's like that's so incredible yeah. I also want to point out your partner at the, like who who is your partner now yeah. to be able to say you need to go that's a good quality to see. 100 percent. So so you're in you you're heading over to Ecuador. Mm-hmm.
1: What does that look like when you get there? Oh man! Well, I had to meet up with a cohort when I got there. There were people that were coming with me. I think we were a group of around twenty people or something, maybe twenty five. And I remember the first thing that like happened as we got off the plane, we were loading into the bus. Um, I came with like really wacky. Materials like my backpack had crazy patterns on it. I brought a ukulele that was sticking out of it, (laughs) and like crazy suitcases. Even Uh, some people, my two like a couple friends had seen me and like picked me out. And coincidentally, they were from one friend is from San Antonio and one friend is from Miami. Mm -hmm. And they they both have Latin heritage, and so my one friend Adriana saw me and was like, "Her, she'll be my friend. That brown lady right there." And we looked around. There really were not a lot of people of colors. So when we did see each other, it was like, okay. Like a
0: magnetic. <laughs> yeah. We're totally. like why
1: does this always happen that our best friends are the people of color? <laughs> like, oh, who knows? It's okay. <laughs> it's good. So we spent a lot of time together at the beginning. I spent a lot of time doing the whole like exploring adventure like going out at night experience (laughs) that I didn't do in college sure and um I like let myself be comfortable with my friends and just like open myself up to people which Mm -hmm. I was normally pretty good at doing but this is a whole group of people that were also needing to do the same thing at the same time and we need to be there for each other and we did just that and we went, ah, there was karaoke, there mm-hmm. were, like, strange drinks. Like, <laughs> I mean, in Ecuador, we have something called michelada, which mm-hmm. is, like, beer and limon and lots of salt. And sometimes hot sauce. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's a traditional drink that you get. And so I went and just did all the exploring that I could and dancing. And it was a lot of things that I had imagined my college experience being. Mm-hmm. And it just fell short. Like, For way sure. short. And I was in South America. There was Latin music everywhere, and there were salsa dancing places. And World Teach actually took us to take a couple salsa dancing lessons and a couple Spanish lessons. And it, it got me on the right foot of especially feeling comfortable. Like, mm-hmm. I'm kind of used to seeing, like, this place in Latin America that's different than where I'm, where my home is. I'm used to seeing like the tiendas and mercados and listening to this music and listening to these people and it felt like home and it felt just like I could slide in there and that's perhaps a very unique experience to a person that's from that area and going back to that area but it still was a whole journey of trying to be okay with the fact that I'm still kind of an outsider but I don't want to be anymore Right. and pushing myself to be more involved mm-hmm. and I think you know I am
0: um, I like in the first half of 2018 I was pretty much gone from the US yeah. and so <laughs> I totally understand what it's like to, to want to be part of a community even though you know of course you have your differences and where you come from the way mm-hmm. that you communicate and it's just That experience of going through and figuring out ways to relate to other people who have had extremely different experiences and have lived in a completely different area, you know, that is really important to to go through, especially as a person of color to understand how to communicate better with different people, right? Yeah. And to create those connections that are just beyond, like, the fascination, the exoticism of traveling. Like, how do you actually connect with people on a, d- a deeper level? So, hundred
1: mm-hmm. percent. It's definitely a lot of, like, realizing that people around the world are all just people like you trying to struggle with their shit every day. Yeah. And you're like, oh, my God, you're not any different than me. We're all just trying to figure this out. And then once you, like... Get past like where you're from or what your differences are. You can I mean use those in your friendship, and you can just be humans together. Right. Yeah, seeing seeing people for their
0: differences, but also accepting their similarities too. And I think we often hear, you know, you should see the similarities in people, but I think a lot of people actually have a hard time accepting those similarities too. Like, how do we actually see people from for how they're similar to us? Mm-hmm. So that's super important. So you're you're in Ecuador, you're having a good time. What was your experience teaching English, and what did you
1: learn from that experience? Oh my God, you can't! English doesn't make any sense. Right. <laughs> that's, that's all I know. I can't I can't speak English anymore. I can't spell in English anymore. I'm like, why are there two P's in the sentence? There are two S's. There are two R's. It doesn't make sense. We have rules in English that you don't follow the majority of the time when right. you're writing and speaking. So that was really difficult to get over <laughs> at the beginning, but I love teaching and I have always come back to teaching as just something to do, like being a teacher's assistant or a tutor, like mm-hmm. back in high school, helping people and helping them learn and get through their day in their life has always been just like a passion of mine. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of easy to fall into. And for half of my classes, I got to teach in an elementary school in Otovalo, which is two hours north of Quito, the capital. And so I was kind of like sandwiched in between the border of Colombia and the capital city. And uh, I lived in a valley between two mountains. And my workplace was called Unidad Educativa Sarance, which is quichua for standing town, Sarance is. Um, And my students, I had about maybe 400 kids between pre-K and 7th grade. Wow. And the government is the one who's, who brought in English teachers because they decided there was a 3,000-teacher deficit in the country that people needed to come in. And I was my assignment was to do 2nd grade through 7th grade. And I got to see the kids in 2nd through 7th grade one time a week to finish out their English lesson mm. or start their English lesson of the week. Just kind of co-teaching with this other lady. But we were too busy to like work with each other. So she was doing her own thing. and We tried to work together to follow the book that the government g- gave out and work on tests and look at things that I had used in my schooling, learning English, which is different than learning it as a second language. Right. So we tried our hardest to work together to figure it out. But in my spare time, I was given another assignment to work with pre-K, kindergarten, and first grade classes mm-hmm. because they didn't have English either. Even though that wasn't what the government told me to do, the school thought that. I had lots of time okay. <laughs> on my hands. So uh, I went in there and I was like, what, what do you want me to teach them? And they are like, English. And I was like, with what? And they are like, I don't know. You figure it out. And so I had to make my own curriculum for them.
0: Oh, for sure. And
1: I remember feeling like so ridiculous walking into a classroom and all the kids are so tiny. Like they're so itty bitty. Like here, (laughs) like a second grader is like the size of one of my third or fourth graders down there. And so I had like no concept of how old these kids were. And my pre-K, I walked into their classroom and I started writing on the board, like, red. Can you say red? And pointing to the word red. Their teacher came up to me and they're like, she was like, they can't read yet. And I was like, right. So let's backtrack. (laughs) Going backwards. (laughs) So I ended up creating my own curriculum for those little ones based in art. We did painting. We did coloring. We did color mixing. Because ultimately, I just want them to know a few basic words. Because I remember that's how I learned Spanish a lot easier, is because I had the basic vocabulary under my belt to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, preschool, kindergarten, first grade, we did colors, we did numbers, we did emotions, and dancing and singing every day. <laughs> we had our own routine of like our songs. And we started with the Good Morning song. We went to the Colors song, and we would add on during the year. But honestly, I think after my whole year, those little ones knew more English than my older kids because we oh, wow. had a routine. I did whatever I wanted to do, and so we had to do the same things every day. And they just got it. Mm-hmm. They really helped me just to like figure out, like, they helped me figure out that as a teacher, I did what I needed to do mm-hmm. to. Get them where they needed to be, which is really, (laughs) it's kind of confusing. But I think as a teacher, now I'm learning how to be a teacher in a more professional setting, but ultimately I think that's what you have to do with your students in order to put their best interests in mind. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have anything to work with. And so learning their interests helped me find a new way to teach them in a way that they would remember, a way that they liked. And ultimately it was all based in the arts.
0: So you were in Ecuador for how many months? Eight
1: months. Okay, I believe.
0: So you're there for eight months, you're teaching, you're also celebrating a little bit on the And then you come back. What was that transition like and what did you take from your experience?
1: My transition was really hard. I am made a lot of friends and people in particular had become so special to me. My host family had just grown into another family of mine, right? Like, I have my family here in, the, in Minnesota, a family in Colombia, and a family in Ecuador now. Mm-hmm. Like, just adding to the list. But it's because they truly cared about me, and I truly cared about them. So packing up and getting out of there was not what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But I came home... And it was reverse culture shock at first. And I didn't know that existed until it right. hit me in my face. And I had heard so many things, like, just, like, things I thought I could get away from or that I was away from by living in another country. Maybe they were still there, but I just didn't really recognize it because I felt like I belonged there. But um, when I had gone to Ecuador at first, it was no, like, December 2016 so just okay. after the election oh, so I, totally. I was out of there yeah. <laughs> and I had to, yeah I had to come back home to a whole new United States mm-hmm. and even my perception of the United States was so different because in school in my school in Ecuador they taught students that there were only seven con- or six continents because North and South America were one America. Oh, wow. So that whole concept of calling North America or calling the United States America was erased for me. Like, mm-hmm. it didn't mean the same thing anymore because people from another part of the world who still are in, in America don't see us like that. We're the United States. It's different. Yeah. So I came back with, like, probably a chip on my shoulder of what the United States holds important in mm-hmm. our own culture. So I was trying to... I mean, I think I was depressed when I came home because it just did not not feel like home anymore. Mm-hmm. But I had to learn how to pick myself up and make it work for me again because I knew I couldn't leave anytime soon. Yeah. So I tried to find my community as much as I could, which led me... Led me to going back to the city and finding a job, which actually wasn't really in the city. I started a job out in Edina and it was at a Spanish immersion daycare. And it was a job that was called lead teacher, which paid more than like the assistant teacher. And I was like, great, that's what I want to do. I want to teach, I want to speak Spanish, I want to be with kids again. But it turned out they put me in the infant room. <laughs> Okay, so they don't they don't talk a lot. Right. <laughs> I just talked mostly with my coworkers, and I would try to do art projects with babies that want to eat paint on their hands. And, <laughs> like, don't get me wrong, those babies are also now, like, some of the most special humans in my life, and I mm-hmm. still get to see some of them. And Aww. it's, like, the highlight of my week whenever I do get to see them because they're just little... Just little humans, and they're growing <laughs> up so much. But, I mean being like being led to there brought me to think about actually teaching and doing a job search when I came home showed me that without a degree in teaching or education doesn't give you the opportunity to get a good paying job in teaching Mm -hmm. or education so I was just looking at my like last year's goals and like where I'm gonna be in a year where I'm gonna be in three years And my year-long goal, I have a lot of stuff about the end of 2018, about the beginning of 2019, and all of it says, go get a master's degree. By December 2018, you're going to be studying. You're going to be working on your master's degree. And so that's what I had done a year ago. I was applying for schools, and I was looking for places, and I ended up back at the U of M, and I'm working on a master's of education right now. As well as my teaching license, um, so it's like kind of a dual program. You work on both, of, work on both at the same time, and you're done in a whole in a year. Wow! You do it in one year, <laughs> and it still feels really crazy that I'm in the middle of it right now. <laughs> but that was ideal for me because looking at the class load, the classes were all about education. And my degree will be in arts education, Mm. so it does have to do with art and it does have to do with teaching, but I did not want to go to school to make art again. Mm, That distinction was important. Yeah. I didn't need classes that took me through creative work. I needed classes to teach me how to teach, Mm. and that was something that I thought was really important at that time. So I got... I applied to the U, and that was the only place I wanted to go and I was anticipating making it to the U, and I needed to do some prereq courses before then, so as the year turned into 2018, I had quit my job, and I had moved in with my sister so I could start going to school at MCTC, mm-hmm. Minneapolis Community and Technical College, so I could take those remaining classes that I needed to do. And I had taken a look at um, like financial aid possibilities and stuff, and I determined that I could do this program this year, or if I didn't get in, I would apply again the next year, and that'd be the best for me financially. So I was determined that this is what I'm gonna do. So I signed up for the for a few classes at MCTC, making the plan that I would be at the U sometime in the fall, and I had to take general psych. Native American Art History, and Ceramics one, And those are three classes that they didn't offer at MCAD, and (laughs) three classes I missed out on. But actually going to MCTC was a huge life-changing moment as well because I found this club called Raíces Unidas. And at MCTC, there is a huge population of people who wanted to get together and experience any kind of Latina like heritage and culture and celebration they also have um what's it called I know the club is called Unite which is focused on indigenous native folks to the United States so there's a club for folks like that as well and I mean MCTC itself is so diverse and it was so wonderful to To have that network of people. Yeah, I felt like there was so much more color around me, I guess. Like, uh, okay, this is where you all are. Like, I'm going to stay here. Can Mm -hmm. I just do my master's degree here? (laughs) It's great. And the club really helped me find a little bit more community. And the classes really helped me too. And Native American Art and Art History, we started our class session learning about stuff in Mexico. And about the Olmecs and Aztecs and Mayans and we worked our way up around the United States mm. ending back in contemporary Native art and ceramics kind of goes hand in hand with that and like learning about southwestern Pueblo potters mm. and so I felt like I was able to have one class to focus on creating whatever the heck it was I wanted to create and then another class learning about histories that I've never learned about before and then psychology but it was all very helpful my final paper at Native American Art and Art History ended up being about um, the indigenous community in Ecuador, which in my town was 80% indigenous folks. Mm-hmm. And there were people who... Um, they were indigenous people and then people who identified as mestizos, like self-identified, but the majority of the population in that town identified as indigenous. And I mean, they might have... Some people might have been mixed blood, but... They self-identified as indigenous because they have the traditions, and mm-hmm. they're passing down their cultures, and the festivals, and the like artisan work, and there were a lot of holidays that I celebrated down there, and one of them was Inti Raimi, which is the solstice, the summer solstice festival, wow. so... I mean, it was a lot of immersion in many cultures when I was down there, so coming back and taking that class Mm -hmm. really helped me connect it back to, we're also Native up here, too. Totally. And when thinking back to how there's not North and South America, it's one America, and we're all Native, to here. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And some of us are not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think about that, because
0: I identify as Misfiza because... You know, and especially with the way that race is looked in the U. S. Looked at in yeah. the U. S. it can be difficult. If, um, I remember when I was applying for my visa for Portugal, I had to put that my race was unknown because I didn't know what to put. Right. You know, like, oh my gosh, those boxes are the right. like <laughs> death of me. And just like thinking of that, like the way that we identify ourselves is not only just our racial background, but the way that we continue those traditions and the cultural uh, connection that we have to our ancestry. And that manifests in different ways, but to hear that specifically from the village you were in, and even though te- technically quote unquote some people could identify as mestizo, mestiza, mestiza, mestiza mm-hmm. um, they continued those traditions and really kept that culture alive. So that's that is really incredible to hear.
1: Yeah, and I got a lot of it from my host family too because they identified um, as a mestiza family, but they I know my one of my host brothers. He married a woman who identified as quichua, which is the indigenous population. And her family invited our family out to everything. So it wasn't even like there was a huge separation. We lived among each other. Like, everybody was just from Otavalo. We were Otavaleños. And I think just, like, the unity in the community was really nice there. Yeah,
0: totally. So you were able to take those classes. You're bringing what you learned in Ecuador back to those classes at MCTC and what is your next move
1: from there? So after that I learned or in the middle of going to MCTC I learned that I got into the master's program at the U along with some scholarships which made it possible to go and it started the program started right away in June and it goes for a whole year. So I knew I had a long journey ahead of me, and we were also dealing with some health problems with my sister as well at that time, so I really had to make a choice to choose me and leave my sister's house and focus on my studies and Mm -hmm. my future, because if I pause on that right now, and I'm 24, like, I know I'm young, but... I have the will and determination to do it now. And so, if I pause from that, I don't know where I'll go. I don't know yeah. where I'll end up. You didn't want to stop the momentum you have. Basically. Exactly. And so, I decided to just keep going with it and go to the U. And I'm happy to say that I'm there. <laughs> I'm still going through it. And I've survived so far. Um, the program at the U has been a lot more than I've expected it to be. They've taught us a lot about recognizing implicit biases, about mm. microaggressions, and about what to do when you see teachers teaching a multicultural unit in art class. And they pull yeah. out their Africa box, and they pull out their South America <laughs> box, and their Asia box. So they're just like neatly packed away for the rest yeah, of the year. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm learning a lot about the kind of teachers that exist the kind of teachers I've had and the kind of teacher I want to be, mm-hmm. and um, most of it. I mean, the U has really helped, but most of it has come with getting back into the classroom where I've Definitely. been doing observations all semester in the in the fall, and I've gotten back to being among students again. And most of our placements have been around Minneapolis, and. I've seen students that look like me and students that remind me of my students in Ecuador. And there have been kids that come up to me and they go, oh my gosh, look, your hair is curly, just like mine. Look, our hair <laughs> matches. And there was a little kid who his teacher was like, oh, this kid speaks Spanish. You know, he's understanding more English, but just so you know. And I looked at him and I was like, entendiste mi that, And he was like, i was like oh my gosh we can talk and so we had a whole conversation and it was like the most i feel like any of his teachers had heard him speak he was just a first grader and i don't know if he was there the year before but in the whatever four months he'd been in school like he had so much fun talking to me and like he was like, oh, you should go upstairs and check out the Spanish immersion school and oh, you should look at this movie and oh, and, like this is my favorite animal, and blah, blah 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 blah. Yeah, it sounds like he had a lot to say. Like he's really did, and Aww. I just like it. Gets my heart every time. Like talking to these kids and showing them that, like, you can. Be a person that looks like me and, like, be in that position in front totally. of you of a classroom. And, like, I didn't have any teachers of color until even I went to MCTC, maybe? I don't even know if I took a class with a professor of color at MCAD.
0: Yeah, I had only, a, I think, a less than a handful.
1: Yeah.
0: Hire more teachers of color, MCAD.
1: Yo, get at me. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, i just really hope to be that representation and there at the u they have a teacher scholars of color graduate program as well where it's kind of like a club but we get together from all different subject areas like mm-hmm. social studies and um english english as a second language or there are teachers that teach um that are learning how to teach second languages so like Spanish and Chinese and Mm -hmm. French maybe um and we all get together and hang out but then the program also sponsors like dinners with St. Paul Public Schools and like Richfield Public Schools and they want to come meet us because they want more teachers of color in their districts And, I mean, that's what we're there for, in the club for, to be all in one place at the same time, and you can talk to us. So, we get to have opportunities in that way, too, to kind of look towards our future. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think a huge part of it is just, you know, when you're speaking about that first
0: grader, you know, who wasn't able to have the conversations that he clearly wanted to have with other teachers, Mm -hmm. being able to see someone like you and... To be able to be heard by that person who is like you, that is so important for students because, unfortunately, a lot of students of color don't get that experience. So what does that do to, you know, students of color's mental health? What does that do to their identity, you know? Those are just sort of larger questions we have to think about, you know, as community members. How do we continue to support students in creative ways, but also in sort of basic needs as students of color?
1: Totally. Totally.
0: So you're, you're teaching these students, or you're, you're working towards teaching students, I should say. How do you plan on using creativity, not only in just the art aspect of your work, but in creating the curriculum for your teaching experiences?
1: Yeah, I really hope to build on the community of wherever I work like, whatever district I work in, mm. community is going to be very important in learning who my student body is and learning where they come from, learning their stories. Like, obviously, I love working, I loved working in Ecuador where the kids looked like me and we mostly spoke Spanish, but here it, it, there are so many different kids from everywhere. Right. And so, being a part of that community as a teacher is so, so important. And so, I mean, there are many ways to do that. And um, I'm getting better at it, too. And like just getting out and meeting people, going to events and speaking. Um, and I also know that just teaching students, just being with students, where there is an opportunity for mutual learning, mm-hmm. where they can learn from me, but I can learn from them, and I can be inspired from them, too, That's part of the reason I wanted to be a teacher in the first place. Because every time I have students with me... Whether they're pre K through elderly folks, no matter what, they teach me something and they inspire me in some way. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm a social person that gets like a social high from being around people. So I think that being able to have this like mutual energy and being able to build each other up will be different than what I've had in my like teachers past. Sure. Like that that reciprocity when you're working with your students and they're working
0: with you as their teacher, that is the creative aspect of that relationship. Because, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately there's not many professions where that's in sort of highlighted and, and recommended for professionals to have that development of that relationship. Right. Totally. So we're as we're wrapping up with your story and sort of the things that you've learned through your journey um if you could give your younger self like let's say five
1: years ago some advice
0: what would you say
1: gosh I think I was 19 five years ago oh geez (laughs) 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 wow I definitely would have told myself to be patient that your creative genius won't just appear overnight Mm -hmm. and like to keep working at it because uh, without like doing things and failing multiple times, you're not going to get anywhere. I think I was so afraid of that when I was younger, afraid of failing, afraid of falling on my face, afraid of creating things that people wouldn't like Mm -hmm. that I just sometimes would hold back and I would just be like, nah, it's taking too long, like this is good (laughs) enough. And so the patience really comes in and also following my instinct. I think after leaving college, I'd started to do that more, like going to Ecuador. Like, sure, why not? Yeah. <laughs> but, like, especially back when I was younger, when I was trying to develop my creative practice, I knew things that I should have been doing. And I knew things that, like, creative projects that I wanted to do. And I held back. And I just shouldn't have done that. So my instinct was right, and my brain was wrong something (laughs) your heart was right but
0: your brain was wrong yeah (laughs) totally I think it's you know again it's that journey of being a creative color and learning how to trust yourself because we have all these different sources of information of criticism consistently telling us you know what you're trying to do is not correct But sometimes it's important to just step back and say, you know what, I know what I'm working on, I know what I need to do, and I'm going to do it. A hundred percent. Totally. So my last question for you to wrap us up is, what advice and resources do you have for creative teachers or artists who want to become teachers?
1: Sure. Um, So resources. I can think of those um, a couple places that I volunteered offhand because that was a good way to like get into the meat of teaching. Like you don't speak the same language as someone else, and you have to communicate with them to get them to learn something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Volunteering at I've I've been at Clues. I also worked at the English Learning Center, which is on Chicago Mm -hmm. and like Twenty Fourth, I think. So those are two places in South Minneapolis that really helped me on my way. And I think there's another... The Minnesota Literacy Center helped me get certified in teaching English as well. Mm. And, um, I mean, ultimately, I'm not going to be teaching English, but that was a step of my journey. Um, As well as just advice in general is keep your determination. I think... Even when people bring you down and people tell you that you're working too hard or not enough or you're not doing the right thing or you're not on the right path. like just It goes back to my first point of be patient and follow your instinct because you know where you should be. So if you follow your determination, then you will get yourself there. And I think using any of that negativity that people throw at you or bring you down or things you hear in the media or things you hear on the street microaggressions or anything like that Mm -hmm. they can be used to fuel your determination and I heard once that the best revenge you can give is by being a better person yourself Mm -hmm. totally yeah fueling yourself to
0: do exactly what you need to do exactly Totally. well thank you so much for being (laughs) on the podcast I was I know when we were first connecting I was just so excited to hear your story because Again, we had met when I was just starting at MCAT. Right. <laughs> so to hear you and your journey, it's it's such an incredible journey and it's such an incredible story. Well, um, yeah, it's just it's great to hear that you've been doing amazing work.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, on the other end too, it's great to talk to you and hear you and everything <laughs> that you're doing. Cause uh, I still, from the teacher perspective, the little itty bitty freshman <laughs> maids is grown up and doing big woman things. Big homes. I tried. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank
0: you again. And I will definitely be putting links to your portfolio, whatever you want to have, Link hire her.
1: Yo. Give her some work. <laughs> I am professional.
0: Awesome. Thank you again. Thanks.